I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. There is just a wall of, like, T-shirts or posters or something, but it's all in Italian. So what? can you explain what some of the stuff says? Uh, vincere, uh, one of the famous motto of Mussolini. It was, we will win uh, the war, of course. That is Carlo Magistretti. He's an Italian journalist. What does that one say? Yeah, come back, come back, Uncle Benito, for a world more clean, for a cleaner world. Carlo worked with me as a fixer on the story. We're in a small town called Pradapio, about an hour outside of Bologna in northern Italy. And we're standing outside one of three shops that sells souvenirs with fascist slogans and imagery. That one, is that Mussolini doing the the Nazi salute? salute? Yeah. Benito Mussolini, Duce d'Italia. Benito Mussolini like the conductor of Italy. It's pretty crazy that it's just out in the open like this. Yeah, like actually. Displayed in the window. Yeah. All of the stuff. Yeah, pretty crazy. A couple of weeks ago, a party called the Brothers of Italy and their leader, Giorgia Maloney, won the Italian general election. Giorgia Maloney has brought Italy's far right in from the political wilderness, with it poised to take control of the country. Led by Giorgia Maloney of the Fratelli d'Italia party, Brothers of Italy, alongside... They're the first party from the far right to come to power in Italy since the days of Mussolini, a name that came up a lot in the coverage of this election, not just because of the Brothers of Italy's hard right campaign promises, but also because of the party's origins. They're descendants of the Italian social movement, the party formed by Mussolini supporters after he died. Maloney's denounced any links to fascism. She says she doesn't believe in the suppression of democracy and rejects anti-Semitism. The Italian right has handed fascism over history for decades now, unambiguously condemning the suppression of democracy and the ignominious anti-Jewish laws. But people who've studied her and the Brothers of Italy say that there is reason to be skeptical that the party's fully severed ties with its past, a past with Mussolini at its center. Mussolini cemented his power in 1922, during a time of political chaos in Italy. His rule was known for its brutality against Italian Jews during the Second World War, against Ethiopians whose country he invaded. The list goes on and on. But in Perdapio, his face is everywhere. It's a place where people come to understand Italy's history, but also where admirers of Mussolini come to celebrate his life and legacy. 
This week on the show, we're going to take you to Mussolini's hometown to try and understand how Italy came to elect its first far-right party since the Second World War and what that says about whether the country's reckoned with its fascist past. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. When Carlo and I get to Predapio, our first stop is Mussolini's family crypt. It's in the back of the town cemetery, and it's become a kind of pilgrimage site. There are two security guards waiting by the door of the crypt. They stop us as we're walking in, ask us what we're doing. We tell them that we're journalists, and they tell us that we need to get permission from the family. Okay. For anything. For recording? Yeah. Can we see? Can we just go and see? Okay, just watching. No okay. photo, no recording. No recording. Yeah. Okay, I'll turn it off. One of the guards follows us as we walk down the stairs and into the crypt. It's this small room, dimly lit, and all around the perimeter there are smaller caskets. These are other Mussolini family members. In the main vault, behind a metal bar, is the biggest one of them all adorned with a giant Italian flag, Benito Mussolini. On top of his casket, there are bouquets of flowers that have been left there by other visitors. No one else is in there with us, but in the guest book, there are at least five to ten messages that have been left there just from that day. A few minutes later, we walk back out and start heading towards the car. The accent in the uh, way of the talk and they watched us. I don't know if you felt... Host- yeah, there is a bit of hostility. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Perdapio gets 50 to 60,000 visitors a year who come to visit the crypt. That's according to the town's former mayor, Giorgio Frazzanetti, although other estimates say the number is much higher. Carlo and I met up with him at a cafe on the town's main street. Well, I was mayor for 10 years. I saw 30 pilgrimages, three times a year. They take place during birth, death, and the march on Rome. Thirty times I saw these pilgrimages. People dressed as carnival, as clowns. Then every day there are people who come to Predapio not in an organized way, but it is clear that they come here for Mussolini's grave. Can you ask him why he thinks people admire Mussolini and why do they feel like they want to come and see his grave? This is a response that is in the profound This is an answer that lies deep inside, in the most hidden part of this country, of the Italians. Why is this still in the belly of the Italians? Even today, it is said that Mussolini also did good things, or that his great mistake was entering with Hitler the war. Why? This is the big question. It's a country like that, which still admires Mussolini, which likes the strong man, After all, in recent decades, we have seen how Italians vote. First, they fall in love with Berlusconi, 
then they fell in love with Bossi, then with the Lega. Today they are in love with Meloni. So there are a few stores here that sell souvenirs and trinkets with fascist and Nazi slogans and symbols on them. Why is that allowed? I know that's something that you said was a really bad idea, but talk a little bit about that. As mayor, I tried in every way to figure out if they could remain open. The answer has always been yes. They are not against the law, because they do not apologize fascism, they say. They do not try to reconstitute the dissolved fascist party, as the Shelbalo says, but they do trade, and therefore they are there and will remain there. The law Frazanetti's talking about has been around since 1952, and it's meant to block the recreation of the fascist party. But it doesn't exactly prohibit any fascist texts or imagery or ideas. When Frazanetti was the mayor, his big goal was to counter the draw of the crypt and the souvenir shops by building a museum of fascism in the former Casa del Fascio. This is an abandoned red and white building that Mussolini had built, one of many across Italy, to be used as the headquarters of the local fascist party. What we have in front of us is the great Palace of Fascio di Predappio, completely abandoned. I wanted to make the first museum on fascism there and understand how fascism was born. They wouldn't let me do it because then I finished my term and then I had to fight with everyone. Now the mayor of Predappio has no intention of doing that. The current mayor, Roberto Canali, took over in 2019. He was backed by Benito Mussolini's granddaughter and by the Brothers of Italy. And one of the first things that he did was open the crypt to the public year-round to boost tourism, instead of just having it open on the anniversaries of Mussolini's birth and death and the March on Rome. We caught him at his city hall office. In Italia non siamo maturi, non siamo pronti per guardare con un occhio. In Italy we are not mature. We are not ready to look at that period with a neutral eye. So Predappio can handle a situation like this. When someone proposed to make the Museum of Fascism in Rome, there was a huge outcry. So they can't do it in Rome. How can we do such a thing in Little Predappio? Canali also stresses that not everyone who visits Predappio is necessarily a pilgrim. I think, uh, well, in my opinion, the sort of people who come belong two categories. Some come during the period of the events and of the famous three commemorative days in which there is also a procession and they have, I don't know why, this vision of things that, however, they have not experienced and therefore do not know. On the other hand, during the year, the people who come are probably interested, but mostly also curious to see the places, the sites, a tomb. I don't think it's a question linked to ideology. ideology. 
After leaving the mayor's office, Carlo and I decide to check out another souvenir shop on the main street. It's innocuously named Souvenir Pradapio, but its walls are lined with t-shirts, flags, posters, and even wine bottles with Mussolini's face on them. The window displays are filled with front pages of newspapers from the dictatorship era and fascist military memorabilia. And we notice an elderly couple and their golden retriever browsing, and we walk up to the man. He tells us that his name is Roberto, and we ask him what he's doing there. You'll hear Carlo translating. First of all, curiosity, and second, uh, the history is important to know the history, to understand the history, and through the history, find the truth. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm wondering, like, can you ask how he feels about Mussolini and, and fascism? And sono fascista. Okay, he's not a fascist. Um, no fascist, no communist. No. He's a curious and uh, search for the truth. Penso di avere una mentalità molto aperta. He thinks to have a, a very open mentality. Riconoscere i fatti della storia anche se. He's no against violence, mm-hmm. and he says that you have to understand what happened in the past. So a lot of people have been asking how Georgia Maloney and the Brothers of Italy could have won this election given their neo-fascist roots. And after spending a day in Pradapio, things started to make a bit more sense to me. But I wanted to talk to someone who's been studying the Brothers of Italy and is an expert in Italian politics about the conditions that allowed for this. Piero Ignazzi is a political science professor at the University of Bologna, and Carlo and I met him at his house. I asked him what he thought of Maloney's victory. Well, contrary to main analysis, uh, I would say that uh, there is nothing new in that. The only novelty is the fact that uh, instead of having Berlusconi's party as the first uh, party, the major party of this coalition, now we have uh, uh, Maloney's party. The reason why there is this change is not linked to a right-wing turn of the Italian electorate. That should be made very clearly. Since 1994, there's been a right-wing coalition of three parties in Italy. That's Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, the Northern League led by Matteo Salvini, and then the National Alliance, which came out of Italy's neo-fascist movement, which led to Giorgia Maloney's Brothers of Italy. Since its formation, this coalition's pretty consistently won more than 45% of the vote in Italy. This time, they got 44, of which Maloney's party got 26. Over the years, right-wing governments led by Salvini and Berlusconi have been plagued by scandal. These were the scenes on the streets of Rome last year when Silvio Berlusconi's office announced he was stepping down. The cries for his resignation had grown louder as his country moved closer to the brink of bankruptcy. And the public's trust in them has declined. This also all comes after the collapse of a leftist coalition government led by Mario Draghi, a government that only the Brothers of Italy wasn't a part of. And so a new leader came out in this front, and the new leader was this young woman, uh, uh, she has a long experience in politics, and uh, 
the success of the Brothers of Italy is basically because uh, the electorate found uh, a new leader to the world uh, with a vote, mm-hmm. and secondly, because uh, she was uh, the leader of the only party in opposition to Draghi government. Georgia Maloney has been involved in politics since she was 15 years old. That's when she joined the youth wing of the Italian social movement, also known as the MSI, the neo-fascist party founded by Mussolini's allies after World War II. When she was 19, she famously said Benito Mussolini was a good politician. In other words, everything he did, he did for Italy. And you don't find it anymore in the politicians that we've had in the last 50 years. Her opponents call her party post-fascist, but she describes herself and the Brothers of Italy as conservative, with a focus on things like the family and its role in society. But she's also against what she describes as a leftist ideology, and she says Christian values and traditional gender norms are under attack. Or you say no. Yes to the natural family, no to the LGBT lobby. Yes to sex identity, no to gender ideology. Yes to the culture of life, not the abysm of death. Maloney's been skeptical of international financial markets, and she's big on putting Italy first. They say that in Europe they're a bit worried about Maloney and what will happen. Well, what will happen? The fun will be over. What will happen is that Italy will be able to defend its national interests. She's also expressed hardline views on immigration. In 2017, she said mass immigration was being used by powerful economic forces to bring in low-wage workers and drive out Italians. She called it ethnic substitution, echoing the white supremacist great replacement theory. What we have seen in Italy, 500,000 immigrants in three years, is a planned and deliberate invasion. And even though Maloney's denounced fascism, historians and political scientists often point to the Brothers of Italy's logo. It's the same red, white, and green flame of the neo-fascist party that they descended from, which was meant to symbolize an enduring loyalty to Mussolini. I asked Piero Ignazzi whether he sees any remnants of the Italian social movement's neo-fascist ideology in the Brothers of Italy today. They are still linked to that tradition because there are many elements in their discourse that are clearly, let's say, subliminal messages to that constituency. In her address, in fact, there are some elements that were clearly referring in, I mean, they were code terms, patriots, instead of citizens. That's clearly first to a conception of politics. And I just want to make the distinction for people, and I wonder if you can explain it. You know, she is saying that she's not a fascist. She's distanced herself from that ideology. A lot of analysts have come out and said, this is not fascism. What is the difference between her politics and the Brothers of Italy's politics and neo-fascist politics? We see there are many, many cultural references that are linked to the extreme right ideology, and more particularly with that of fascism. Uh, Let me give you an example. We celebrate in Italy the end of the war with the insurrection of the anti-fascist partisans the 25th of April. 
that is a national holiday. Well, Meloni has uh, repeatedly declared that that should not, should not be considered an holiday. I mean, that is a dividing line between being uh, part of the anti-fascist uh, regime or be nostalgic of, uh, of the past. What does it say about Italy's memory of fascism and um, the existence of these kinds of attitudes in the country when you think about the fact that the country was willing to elect this party that has roots in the neo-fascist movement? As I said, there is a, a much larger constituency of uh, people which doesn't care so much of fascism within the right, within the right, with borders that could go also somewhat to the center, there is an attitude which is not so uh, uh, crit dramatically critical toward, uh, toward fascism. Therefore, even in a, a party, a party and the leader who has been uh, immersed in that uh, political culture doesn't make a problem, doesn't create any, any, any concern. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So going back to our souvenir shopper, Roberto, his view on fascism, that maybe it wasn't all bad, that isn't that uncommon in Italy. I asked Professor Ignazzi about that too. In that period, there were some uh, initiatives, uh, some activities, some policies that were considered beneficial for everybody. And so those parts are taken, are you know, cherry-picking this, uh, this aspect of the regime to say, ah, man, there was also good things in the regime, there was also that, that good. And um, so this is uh, the, the standard uh, attitude that have uh, all these people which remember in, uh, and look at uh, fascism with uh, pink lenses. Many Italians believe, for example, that Mussolini introduced public housing in the country and that he made the trains run on time. But neither of these things are true. For me, the whole experience of going to Predapio was really jarring and strange, especially because for the last couple of months, I've been doing this show from Germany. And it's pretty hard to imagine a place like Predapio being allowed to exist here. In the aftermath of World War II, Germany went through an intensive process of denazification. The goal was to purge Nazi symbols and beliefs from public life. And reminders of the atrocities committed by fascists during World War II are everywhere. Berlin, if ever there were a capital of memory, this is it. The city's Holocaust memorial, dedicated to the some six million European Jews murdered by the Nazis, sits right in the heart of the German capital, a vast sea of stone slabs, anonymous, dehumanizing. 
When I'd asked Mayor Frazzanetti why he thought people were still making the trip to see Mussolini's tomb, one of the things that he brought up was this comparison to Germany, that nothing like the Nuremberg trials, which prosecuted Nazis for their crimes, had ever happened in Italy. In fact, while those trials were happening in Germany, Italy released thousands of fascists from prison and gave them amnesty. Many of them ended up taking jobs in post-war administrations. By the end of the day, Carlo and I have spent a bunch of time together, and we've been chatting a lot in the car about how he grew up, what he thinks about this election. He says he didn't learn about Italy's history with fascism until high school, and that even then, it was a pretty short and abridged version of that history. We talk about how there's never really been a national reckoning around these issues, and Carlo hopes it'll happen soon. We have to can we say we have to face the problem? It's time to face the problem and close this chapter. But if we don't do that, uh, time uh, can also uh, increase the myth of the fascism and Mussolini, as you saw. I think that talking is the first step and it's important. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producers this week are Joita Shangupta and Simi Bassi. Our sound designer is Julia Whitman. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our senior producers this week are Willow Smith and brand new to our team, the wonderful Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kendacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.